So we're in 1 John chapter 5, beginning of verse 9. Let's read down through verse 13. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning, as we think about assurance and what it means to rest in you, God, we ask that you would give us increased spiritual clarity and confidence that comes from the testimony of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the person that has come in confused about spiritual things today, that you would speak clarity through your word into their life. Lord, we pray for those who may struggle with assurance and discouragement and confusion. Lord, we pray that you would bring clarity and confidence so they can walk knowing the reality of your love. And so God, we invite you into this time as we study and hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our summer series is called Asking for a Friend. Generally, throughout the year, we work our way through books of the Bible and study through those and study the message of those books. But often in the summer, we do a, a series where we look at different passages around a number of topics and study those from God's Word. So during this summer, we focus in on important passages that instruct us on a particular topic. And, and in our current series, Asking for a Friend, we're aiming to answer the sort of questions many of you have but may not feel confident to ask. So you can always just say you're asking for a friend. Uh, the number is on the screen. If you've got other questions that we'd, you'd like worked into some of the content in the coming weeks, we'd love to hear them. You can always ask questions about the sermons using those numbers. Uh, we're also aiming to equip you to have solid biblical answers for your friends that have genuine spiritual questions. As soon as you start talking about your faith, you encounter people who will often uh, have questions, push back. We want you to have solid biblical answers for those friends who are genuinely inquiring. Well, today we're looking at a really important question, a question that is at the heart of you gaining spiritual clarity. It's the question, how can I be sure of my salvation? How can I be sure of my salvation? Or put another way, how can I be sure that my sins are forgiven and I will receive eternal life? Another way you might ask that question is, how do I really know if I'm a Christian? Are there ways for me to know whether I'm authentically in the family of God or whether I have false assurance? And, and here's the thing, at the heart of this is your need for spiritual clarity. I have never seen someone live confidently in their walk with Christ without spiritual clarity that they belong to God. I've never seen anyone do anything in life of any import or significance unless they had absolute confidence and clarity about what it looks like to go forward. 
It takes a level of clarity for us to do bold things in the Christian life is a bold thing indeed. And so I want you to have spiritual clarity. And so we're answering this question from this passage. Now, here in, in chapter 5, in verse 13, we see the importance of spiritual clarity because as John ends the book and as he summarizes the book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That tells us right off the bat that there is an answer to the question, can I be sure that I'm saved? Can I know that I have eternal life? Well, John has taken five chapters to help us understand how we can be confident and where that confident really lies. And so we see two things really in this passage that really build our confidence. And we're going to do that by looking at an overview of the book of why John would say this at the end of the book, that he wrote these things so that we could have confidence. In in, in in discovering confidence, in gaining spiritual confidence in your Christian life, the first thing you need to understand is that there's a testimony to believe. So if we're asking ourselves, where does biblical assurance of salvation come from? The answer, first of all, is that there is a testimony to believe. We see this in verses 9 through 12. The entire basis of assurance, of confidence of our salvation, it says, is really rooted in the character of God. Now this morning I'm going to talk about two types of assurance. The first is what we often refer to as objective assurance. Objective assurance. Objective simply means the sort of assurance that comes from a testimony outside of us. Someone else of proper authority is able to give testimony that we can be assured of something. And so objective assurance is the assurance that comes from God. From God's witness about what it really means to be in his family. And so this is the truth from beyond us that produces assurance in us. Now look how that's going on in this passage. Verse 9. He starts to make his argument. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. So he's saying if we want to gain, gain assurance, first, we have to lock into the testimony of God about how confident and where we can find confidence that we're actually saved. And so we see him working this argument out. It's this, he, he makes it all about God's character. He says, you know, we, we look at human testimony and in many ways we can have confidence to some degree in the testimony of other human beings who we know and we understand their character. But God is of spotless and pure character and he gives us testimony of where we can find assurance. That's what John is arguing here. That means we can and normally will, as Christians, experience assurance primarily because God is trustworthy to fulfill his promises and he has told us how we can have the hope of eternal life. If we root ourselves in what God has already promised, if we're relying on what God has promised, that promise is sure and we can trust in it. We can gain confidence and assurance by leaning into that. So salvation... When we talk about salvation, it's first and foremost a matter of believing God's testimony about us. God's testimony of the joy that he has in saving and redeeming and forgiving sinners who call on him for salvation. That's God's testimony. 
You think about that, the cross speaks of God's willingness and desire and testimony that God loves to receive sinners who could not otherwise receive eternal life on their own. And so we see that salvation is first and foremost a matter of believing God's testimony. I want you to think for, the, for a moment of the most trustworthy person in your life. The most trustworthy person in your life. That person who makes a promise to you, get, get them in your mind. You know, just play along with me for a moment. Like everybody dig deep and think about who's that person in your life. You go, you know, this is a trustworthy person. I believe, I believe this person's integrity, what they say. They make a promise to you. You don't even wonder if they're gonna follow through on it and deliver on it. In your mind, it is as good as done. You got it? Some of you look like you're sleeping. All right, that's better. You got it in your mind. You see, you take that, and, and, and he says, you know, we have confidence. We can, we can find confidence at times in the testimony of other people, of what they promise, of what they tell us. And he says that God has borne witness that salvation, the door of salvation is open to us in Christ. That God has borne witness that he redeems sinners who call on him for salvation because of what he has done on the cross. God has given his testimony and God's testimony is more sure than the most trustworthy person in your life. Man, if I started thinking about it, at least near the top would be my mom. My mom is amazing. You know, like I just believe everything that woman says. In fact, I cannot even imagine. Like if somebody really wanted to take me for a ride, they would convince my mom to say something to me. You know, if you wanted to play a trick on me or pull off a surprise, you got to get my mom because I don't, I don't trust many people. I usually think somebody's people have an angle, but my mom, I trust her entirely. And so if she began to say something to me, I'd be like, it is good as done. If she was promising that she witnessed something or saw something, I wouldn't wonder whether she witnessed that or saw that. And when I think about that, it's amazing for me to think that there's a trust even beyond that. It's so steadfast and sure. But God's testimony is greater. God's character is greater. It's more steadfast and sure. And he's made a promise that he gives salvation. That's what we see in this passage. God has provided forgiveness, reconciliation, and salvation through sending his son Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross and provide the promise of the eternal life through his resurrection from the dead. It's a promise that we receive. Even in 1 John, the whole of the book, the heart of the gospel has been highlighted over and over for us to see this is God's promise. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's God's testimony about what he was doing in Christ. That though we are sinners, that we have available to us an advocate who is the only righteous one who stands before the throne of God covering us in his mercy. And because of that, if you have put your faith in him, you can rest assured that God keeps his promise. Sinners that flee to Jesus don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus will save them in the end. Whether he will receive them no matter where they've been, what they've done, who they've been with, and how often they've failed. 
There's a testimony to believe. 1 John 3, 16. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's how salvation is brought to us, not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, not by our faithfulness, not by our increased levels of obedience. That's not where salvation comes to us from. 1 John 4, 2 he gives us a testimony of who Jesus is from God's perspective. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now that term, come in the flesh, is pulled right out of John's gospel. We see there that God himself, the Son, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus so that God himself would provide our salvation in Jesus by going to the cross and paying for our sins even though we don't deserve it. This is God's testimony of how we receive salvation as a gift and where our assurance comes from because God delivers on what he promises. One more testimony that I saw as I ran through the book of 1 John. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Salvation is a work of the love of God that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not so that we might gain ourselves to a place where someday God would take responsibility for us. He sent his son into the world so that through him we might live even though we've been dead in our spiritual life through our trespasses and our sins. In this is love, verse 10. Not that we have loved God. Our, our assurance doesn't come first and foremost from the basis that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the second time that word propitiation has come up. And it means literally to remove the wrath of God that belongs to our sin. To remove the judgment of God that our sins deserve because Jesus died on the cross for us. So God went to that extent to offer us a promise that he keeps when we call upon him for salvation. And so the point, we can see it then in verse 11 of chapter 5 here that we read. The testimony that John highlights is that eternal life comes by receiving the promise that God gives. It's important. If you underline in your Bibles, I think you should underline verse, in verse 11 the word, that, the word gave us eternal life. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That God is the kind of person who gives good gifts and doesn't take them back. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. We have eternal life because of what Jesus has accomplished and not because of what we have accomplished. And so if you want assurance, first of all, you need to know that you're trusting in that testimony of God that he will save and rescue and forgive and reconcile you if you call on him in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a testimony to believe and it's an objective assurance. It's a promise from outside of us that isn't produced inward. But now what we see also in 1 John is, see, is that in, in addition to a testimony to believe, there are some tests to confirm. There are some tests that we can use to look at our lives to confirm whether, whether we have received this gift and what it does in its saving work in us is actually happening in us. There are tests to confirm. We would call this subjective assurance. It's the experiences from within us that speak a testimony that we are, in fact, legitimately a part of God's family. John MacArthur, the uh, pastor, uh, 
in talking about assurance, says that there are two factors to consider when we talk about about assurance. First, the question, do I believe? And then second, is my faith real? Do I believe and is my faith real? Is there any authenticity to it? The reason that we can talk about marks of confirmation or tests of confirmation or an inward confidence of salvation is because we have in Scripture distinguishing characteristics that mark out belonging to the family of God. So what happens is is we recognize salvation isn't like a ticket, a slip, a piece of paper that we pick up and save for later. What happens is when we call upon God for salvation, he keeps his promise. And his promise is that he comes into our lives with the work of his spirit and he puts his spirit within us. He makes claim on us. And and through the work of His Spirit, at that moment, as we've called upon the Lord, we are born again. For some people, that comes like a dramatic force of moment in their life. For others, it's the, the, the dramatic nature of it is less distinguishable, but God has implanted His Spirit at some point in their life as they've trusted the good news by faith. And you can see that the things that would happen where the Spirit is present in giving life are happening. I don't know what your testimony is, but one of those two things are true. But here's what you need to understand. Salvation is a work of God in us as much as it is a promise from beyond us. And if you don't understand that, you'll fail to really grasp how to, how to seek your heart, how to look at your heart and gain legitimate assurance. So I'm going to say it again. Salvation is a work of God in us as much as it is a promise from God beyond us. So we await the fullness of the promise. But what we understand, Ephesians says, chapter 1, is that God has put the Spirit within us like a deposit that is working its way out for us to gain confidence until the day when we are resurrected with Christ and the full salvation has come. That means if the Spirit is in us, sanctifying us, bringing us on to completion, that we would be able to notice marks that we've been born again. This is how salvation is talked about in Scripture. Over and over, Scripture describes the experience of salvation in a person in terms of new birth. We're born again, born spiritually. A word picture that describes that the Holy Spirit has produced a new spiritual life towards God within us. And we're able to identify the basic characteristics. Now, we have a lot of babies around here. I mean, like today in childcare, up to fifth grade, we probably have 110 children in childcare today. And so that means thank a childcare worker as you leave. When you go to the babies, I mean, with the babies, we're starting a second class of babies so that we have more space for you to bring your children. We have other women who are pregnant. We love to celebrate new births and babies. And so it's not, it's, it's not an, an, an unusual occurrence for me to be walking through and for the first time meet one of the children that have been recently born. That's likely to happen even today. And, and so... You know, of course, the baby that's always buried, you know, like when they come into public and they're small, like they're in that stroller and they're covered up in blankets and just, uh, you know, it's like you, you can't actually see them, but you see them coming, but you can't see that it's an actual baby in there. All right. So just imagine that you're, you know about this child that's been, that's been born and uh, the parents are on their way into pillar and you can't see the baby yet. And when the baby is unwrapped from that blanket, much to your surprise, you see this little creature with floppy ears 
with golden brown fur, a cute little tail, and it starts barking at you out of the stroller. That would be an odd experience. I mean, are you with me? Some of you are like, no, that sounds completely normal. You would look around at everybody else like, uh, I don't think she gave birth to that. I'm pretty sure that's not hers. Because we, pro- we reproduce the general characteristics of what we are. And the Spirit of God does the same thing when He's within us producing new life. When we are born again, it produces the character and life of God in us so then we can identify authenticity of belonging in God's family. So authentic spiritual life is produced by the Spirit of God and we gain confidence as we see the work of God's Spirit in us producing authentic spiritual life shaped by the cross. And for some of you, the, the confidence that will be gained is as you see the Spirit of God producing in you what the Spirit produces. Now, John tells us what that is. In fact, the whole book of 1 John is designed to help us see that and understand it. And I just want to take you on a quick tour of some of the things that he says that we should look for. So he says that, so, so if you think about this, we're, we're looking, we're going, okay, has that thing been born of the Spirit? Is this the Spirit's child, Right? And does it have marks of authenticity? Here's the ones that are particularly spoken of. So what distinguishing characteristics does the Spirit of God produce in us? First, we, re- we agree with God about our sin. When the Spirit has been given to us and we have called on the Lord for salvation, we begin to agree with God about our sin. Look at how he says it in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him, that means we belong to God, we're in relationship with him. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, that word confess means to agree with God. If we agree with God about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So one of the distinguishing marks of a genuine Christian is their willingness to agree with God about the reality of their sin. So that means when the Bible clearly defines something as sin and it's present in our life, we agree with God that it's wrong. We agree with God that it shouldn't be in our life. We agree with God that that it needs to be removed, that we're walking in darkness. And so there, it's not just sinlessness. We're not looking for the total absence of sin, but we're looking for a posture towards sin. And I would ask you the question, what is your posture towards sin? Do you agree with God when God says something is sin? And when God begins to convict you in your life, do you agree with God that it needs to be removed? Do you confess it? Are you willing to admit it and acknowledge it because the Spirit of God brings us into greater light, not greater darkness? So the question is, is are you making progress in that? Do you see yourself living with increased transparency in your life that's produced by the Spirit of God? This is one of the characteristics of genuine spiritual life. So that's the first one. Number two, we walk in obedience. We walk in obedience. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. You see, he just keeps going on this. We, we know him because we confess our sin. It's evidence that we agree with God. He says, by this we know him. Now moving into chapter 2, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk 
in the same way in which he walked. Now the end of that verse is really important for understanding what we're looking for. Now, granted, there are times in a Christian's life where they do not walk according to the commandments of God. There are times where you will struggle with disobedience and things God has been clear about. But what a Christian will do, the overall pattern of their life will be to acknowledge that with God, to confess it, and be willing to begin to walk in the way that Jesus walked. There'll be, there'll be, God will produce in you a willingness to walk with him. Now, you notice that, that the call is Jesus has walked in righteousness and, and, and if we are really, we belong to him, if we really know him, we'll walk along the same path that he walks. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be as far down the path as him, but it's, it's the path of obedience to God's word. It's a, the path of obedience to God's instruction. You will struggle with assurance if you're living in blatant disobedience to God. Let me, let me hear you. Let, uh, I mean, please hear me. You will struggle with assurance and confidence of salvation if you are walking in known blatant sin against God. And I want, I want you to hear me say this. You should. You should. Because it brings up a major question of authenticity in your life. You should begin to do some soul searching by the Holy Spirit of God to ask yourself, is this a struggle where I can lean into obedience, where there's a real desire for obedience, but I keep losing? Or is this just an evidence that I could really care less about God and I've just used him for my own benefit? But when it comes to obeying him and trusting him, I'm not interested. You see, the Spirit of God produces an increased growth in obedience to God's word, an increased desire for that kind of growth. And so... We walk in obedience. First John says it, First John chapter 3, verse 4 through 6 says it even more strongly uh, when it's talking about this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared. Jesus came in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now in the context there, it's not talking about just our, our struggles against sin and temptation and falling to temptation, but it is talking about our clear setting to deal with sin in our life. That it's not a practice. It's not something that we cultivate in our life. It's not something that we excuse increasingly in our life because Christians born of the Spirit of God want to walk in obedience and clarity with God's word. So we walk in obedience. Number three, we grow in love for one another. One of the distinguishing features of someone who has been born of the Spirit, who has been saved, the inward experience is God produces love for other Christians, for other brothers and sisters who share that testimony. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That means we, as Christians, we don't tolerate hatred in our hearts towards one another. We don't, have, we don't tolerate ongoing bitterness and broken relationships that go on and spurn themselves into a genuine hatred for someone else who professes Christ. Now, can we just be honest how challenging that can be at times? I mean, we are so different from one another. Even just in this room, in the midst of a fairly similar culture, we have great differences from, from one end of the spectrum to the other on all sorts of categories. 
That means at times we're going to experience the sense that we don't enjoy uh, somebody's patterns of life, somebody's responses to life, their personality, the way they act, and, and all of those sort of things. And we have to learn to love one another. Love is a cultivated gift that we give to the body of Christ. And we give that cultivated gift because God gave it richly to us in Jesus. He loved us first. Therefore, there is nothing that could keep us from fighting to learn to love one another. And so the question that we have to ask is this, the feature that we're looking for in our lives is, do you fight to love other people in the body of Christ with a real genuineness and authenticity? Are you leaning in to battling the sort of pride in the difficulties that come up in those relationships so that you can overcome them so that blessing can flow freely from one life to another? You see, wherever hate is cultivated, whether anger is cultivated, where we're, where we're cultivating that towards someone and we're not dealing with it before God, we begin to lose any sense of assurance because it's a distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit in us that we would learn to love one another. And so we gain confidence by learning to love one another, seeing that spring forth. 1 John 3, 14 and 15 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. You know that you've been saved. You're spiritually alive because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We talk a lot about extroverts and introverts. And some people enjoy relationships. Some people don't enjoy relationships. Some people, you know, take them in different doses and experiencing them, experience them differently. But for a moment, let's remember that God's word is clear about something. Whether you're an extrovert and you enjoy connecting with people, whether you're an introvert and you need to recharge and get away, we have a responsibility to cultivate fellowship and love with one another. Every genuine Christian that I've ever met has a desire to support other Christians in their walk with Christ. They're growing in that desire. They may not always be super skilled at it. For a whole lot of reasons, you may have started uh, having to run uphill in that area of life because of how you were raised and things that you've gone through. But, but, but a genuine Christian is walking toward people, walking toward the body of Christ in a way that they're, in, they're experiencing and enjoying fellowship because they know that we grow in love for one another. Number four, we do not love the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now let me distinguish this from just enjoying God's created gifts. Like enjoying God's created gifts is just being thankful for the grace that God has made us embodied people who enjoy food and enjoy life and enjoy culture and all of those things are perfectly fine. The world here, he has defined it in a very specific way. He defines it here as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And, he's, and he's, he's speaking of it that way so that when we hear world in 1 John here, we hear prioritizing earthly things over God prioritizing things in the world over and above, cultivating a genuine spiritual life toward God. And so, we, so Christians do not allow the things of the world to primarily pull them away from obedience to God, love for God, joining in the mission of God. We put our setting toward trusting God. 
1 John 5, 4 and 5, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. There's an increase, there's a growth in this direction. You may not have arrived at a place of perfection, but you're moving down a path where increasingly the, the words of the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and knowing that in the light of that, all other worldly things are growing strangely dim. And so I wonder, have you experienced that? Have you experienced the sense in which the, 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 the things that would profit you, the things that, that, that you have desired in the world, they're growing strangely dim as you walk with God and become more and more prioritized around Him and His purposes? And lastly, number five, we reject false teaching about Jesus. We reject false teaching about Jesus. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit every spiritual influence. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. First John 4, 5, and 6, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. This is John, one of the apostles, saying, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so what that means is we let the apostles, through the word of God, tell us who Jesus is and not other spiritual influences. And so Christians grow an increased, an increased sense in which we reject the false teaching about who Jesus is and we root ourselves in the apostles' teaching, the apostles' word in the New Testament that tells us who Jesus is. We, we cut ourselves off from false teaching that will destroy our souls. You see, all of these things are a part, John says, of experiencing inward confidence and assurance that we belong to Christ. So ultimately, how do we examine? What do you do with this? What do you do with this this morning? First of all, I would encourage you to examine this in community with other people. We have life groups here, and uh, we've got courses. We have opportunities for you to develop relationships. Uh, you may not be from here. Maybe you're visiting today. The important thing I would say to you is never just examine this in and of yourself. God has given us the body of Christ so that we can be in conversation to be able to see ourselves in ways that we might not see ourselves. And so we need to actually take these things and examine them together. That's why he says we're building fellowship with one another because spiritual life may take on a particular shape in your life, but it always carries these basic distinguishing marks. There's no, and so other people can help us see, is there a genuineness to what's going on in your spiritual life? You should involve yourself in a life group in some deep relationships with other Christians where you can explore this, where you can gain confidence that, yes, my faith is a real faith. It's an authentic faith that is springing forth in fruit that looks like these things that John has mentioned today. Where you are rooted in trusting and being reminded regularly to trust in the promise of God given to us through Jesus Christ. So we do this in fellowship with others. But also, don't forget how it began. We do it in light of the promise of the gospel. You see, this isn't ultimately about us, you know, on a scale of one to 10, going from two to three to gain assurance. This is about us leaning into God and asking for God to produce in us the spiritual life that he promised us when we put our faith in Christ. 
And so your response today, if you look at this and you go, you know, I see it, but it's, it's in so many areas, I feel just weak to, to express these things. I feel a sort of spiritual weakness in these categories, but I think it's alive in there. Well, then today you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you've, you've given your promises. I'm trusting in your word. Would you produce in me these sort of fruits? Would you help me through the, in the context of this body and other people around me to be stirred up in ways that would look like this? And now I want to long for these things. I want to cultivate these things in my life and I want to lean into them in light of all of your promises that the spirit is what really produces genuine Christian life but you may be here today and you recognize that if this is what it looks like to be a Christian you've never put your faith in Christ Perhaps you've considered yourself for a, Christi- a Christian for a long time and you've been in that exhausting stage uh, of trying to live a Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit filling and influencing you, producing it in you. You've never really come to a point where you've nailed down trusting in the promise of God that's given to us in the gospel. And because of that, there's a lack of fervency, a lack of desire. There's no presence of the Holy Spirit in your life producing these things. Well, I've got good news. God's promises are sure. They're better than my mom's word. And today he has promised that if you will call upon him for this salvation and invite him into your life, he will produce these fruits in you. He will set you aside by the spirit of God with the promises of salvation. And today can be the day where you call on the Lord for salvation. Right there in your seat as we have a time of reflection, as we go into our time of taking the Lord's Supper, you can say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve what you did for me in the death of Jesus. And I've wondered about all these things, but Lord, today I put my faith and trust in your promises, and I just want you to bring your spirit into my life to give me new spiritual birth. And God will deliver on that promise. You call on him and you let someone know in this, before you leave today that you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don Carson, uh, New Testament scholar, he says about assurance, he says it's kind of like imagining you were a part of the Passover in Egypt that night when the death angel was coming through and God had instructed the, uh, the people of Israel, you need to do you need, to, you need to slaughter the lamb. You need to put the blood over the doorpost. And if you do that, the death angel will pass over because I'm judging Egypt and I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand. The book of Exodus. And you imagine two people walking in the street that night, he says, and there they are in the street discussing what's going on. And, and a normal person might be a little bit fearful. Like, are you ready for this? What's going to happen? I hope that it works. I hope that tonight we'll be safe. And, and the other person's like, well, God, you know, God told us what to do. He's promised, did you, did you slaughter the lamb? Did you put the blood? Yeah, yeah, we did everything. We've done it exactly. We've, we've responded in the way that God has told us. And he said, okay, well, well so have I. I feel confident in the person. Are, are you scared? No, I'm not scared. I'm, I feel, feel rested and assured that God is gonna deliver his promise. He said, oh, but I'm just still worried. I don't know what's gonna happen. And Don Carson says, which one of those were saved and rescued that night? The answer is both of them. Both of them. Because our salvation doesn't rest in the surety of our confidence, but in the promise of God. And his character is unchanging. And so today, if you need salvation, if you need this hope, you come to God because his promises are sure. And even if you're fearful, ask the Lord to cultivate confidence and clarity that is shaped by the gospel in your life and allow him to bring you on to a place of completion and confidence and assurance in him. And we trust his spirit will produce that 
Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray for this. Lord, we, we don't want to be a body that is confused and wondering whether we belong to you. You have given us the privilege and promise of being your family. And so, Lord, we rest confident in that. Lord, I pray for those who today, right now, might be making that decision to put their faith in Christ. Would you stir up their hearts and strengthen them? Lord, I pray that uh, as we go into this time of the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us that it rests on your promise and not on our performance. In Jesus' name, amen.